Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are going to talk about something that's deeply rooted in American history, having a huge impact on local and regional culture, crime and law enforcement, and a wealth of music and television and movies. And that subject is moonshine. Seemed kind of appropriate for an autumnal episode. There are definitely distilling traditions from all over the world, and they go back through thousands of years of human history. So when we say moonshine, we're talking specifically about illegal liquor made either in violation of distilling laws or more commonly tax laws. It's most often associated with corn, although other ingredients have been used to make moonshine as well, including sugar. The name moonshine has also been used in English-speaking Europe and in North America, and it's really its place in North American history that we are talking about today. People have fermented foods to make alcohol for much of human history. And then around 2,000 years ago in China, people figured out that you could distill fermented grains to get even stronger alcohol. Fermenting grain gave you a mildly alcoholic result, like beer. But if you heated that alcohol and collected the vapor that rose from it, that was a lot more potent. By the year 1100, people in Italy had started distilling alcohol to use as medicine. It was most obviously consumed as a painkiller. Since then, people have also used it as a cough suppressant and and kept some on hand for snakebite. Although, to be clear, it's not actually a good idea to drink alcohol if you have been bitten by a snake. Uh, snake bite might make for a very handy excuse to have it around, though. People have also used distilled alcohol to make topical medicines, like wound antiseptics or mixing the alcohol with herbs and other ingredients to make uh, pain-relieving or antiseptic rubs. Soon, this practice of distilling spread across Europe with people distilling wines and beers to get stronger alcohols. And of course, as people found recipes for distilled alcohol that were more pleasant to drink, people started doing that as well. In terms of the beverages that have had the most influence on American moonshine, people in Scotland were making whiskey out of grain by the end of the 15th century. And by the early 17th century in Ireland, people were doing what American moonshiners would come to do themselves, distilling their whiskey in secret illegally to avoid paying a tax that was instituted in 1622. By this point, the most common way of making whiskey was with a copper still. Colonists from Scotland and Ireland brought this tradition of distillery with them when immigrating to the Americas starting in the 1700s, many of them bringing their stills with them when they did. Corn had already been introduced in Europe by this point, with with ships from the Americas bringing it back with them. But it was really in the 17th century in North America that people started distilling liquor specifically from corn, rather than using other grains. The first person known to do this was George Thorpe, and he was a colonist in Jamestown, Virginia. He wrote to his cousins about doing so in a letter. It took a while before making corn liquor really took off, though. One reason was that corn was needed as food. This was also true of the ingredients for other potable alcohols. Beers and whiskey are made from grain, wine is made from grapes, and brandy is made from fruit. And these were all things that people needed to eat, with fermented foods mostly being used only as animal feed. 
People food was often a higher priority, sometimes so much so that it was actually illegal to use these foodstuffs to make alcohol. Another reason why corn whiskey wasn't immediately popular was because in the North American colonies, people were really into rum. Rum was introduced to the North American continent from the Caribbean islands. Rum was also abundant thanks to its role and the role of the sugar and molasses that were needed to make it in the transatlantic slave trade. At various points prior to the colony's independence, the British government and other European governments that had controlled colonies in North America tried to regulate or tax imported spirits. This was, needless to say, extremely unpopular, and it led to a rise in people making their own liquor, which wasn't illegal yet. The Revolutionary War also disrupted the colony's access to the molasses and sugar that had been used to make rum. And that's when people really started distilling alcohol from other foods instead. So making it out of corn became more popular. Then, after the end of the Revolutionary War, the fledgling United States government decided to tax domestically distilled spirits, both to try to curb excess drinking, which was rampant at this point, and to help pay off the debts that had been incurred during the war. So, to that end, the excise tax went into effect on March 3rd, 1791. This was an act, uh, quote, repealing after the last day of June next, the duties heretofore laid upon distilled spirits imported from abroad and laying others in their stead, and also upon spirits distilled within the United States and for appropriating the same. The new law outlined different taxation rates for imported spirits based on their strength, with stronger spirits progressively taxed more heavily. It applied those same taxes to domestically distilled spirits, regardless of whether people planned to sell what they were making. It also taxed small distilleries at an annual flat rate, based on how much their stills were capable of producing, rather than by how much they actually made. That meant that the smallest distillers were often paying tax on a product that they never actually produced, just because their stills were capable of making it. This was the first time that domestically distilled alcohol had ever been taxed in North America, and people were not happy about it. You know, anything about American history, taxes in general, have never been popular. But the idea that people were going to be taxed for something that they made for their personal use not to sell, or that they never actually made at all, was galling just on principle. Another problem was that for people who lived in mountainous or remote areas, it was easier and safer to turn their crops into alcohol and sell that than it was to try to transport fresh food over long and treacherous distances to market. It was also a way women could make enough money to support themselves, especially as the daughters and widows of moonshiners took up their late relatives' work. In these remote areas, people who made their money selling liquor often had enough to help fund things like schools and churches in their areas and communities. Basically, for a lot of people, liquor was the best way they could make ends meet with the resources that they had. And this tax was going to cut deeply into their ability to support themselves. The South, in particular, strenuously objected to the excise tax. In addition to all of those reasons above, Many in the South were descended from Scots-Irish immigrants, so distilling was part of a long family and regional tradition. Almost no Southern representatives voted in favor of the tax, and the people those representatives represented were dead set against it. 
The most obvious result of this tax was the Whiskey Rebellion. This was an armed rebellion that will be its own episode later this year. But, extremely briefly, farmers in western Pennsylvania rebelled against the excise tax, destroying a tax inspector's home and growing in strength and resentment until the government sent in the militia in 1794. In the face of the militia, those protesting mostly dispersed, and about 150 people were arrested for treason. In 1802, after the election of Thomas Jefferson, all of the United States' internal taxes were repealed, including the excise tax, with the exception of a brief tax that was levied to finance the War of 1812. The federal government stayed away from taxing distilled spirits for a few decades. But that uh, changed with the Civil War, and we're going to talk about how that changed after we have a brief word from one of the great sponsors that keeps this show going. So to return to the story of Moonshine, the United States passed its first income tax and appointed its first commissioner of internal revenue in an effort to fund the Civil War. The first version of the tax code taxed other goods and professions in addition to a tax on people's incomes. These other taxes included a tax of $50 on distillers, which was coupled with a tax of 20 cents per gallon on the alcohol that those distillers actually made. This law went into effect in 1862. Naturally, the federal government could only collect this tax in the states that were not in rebellion. But in the Confederacy, distilling dropped for a different reason during the Civil War. Once again, the need to use raw ingredients as food and not for making alcohol. In 1863, the first revenue commissioner, Joseph J. Lewis, recommended raising the per-gallon tax on spirits from 20 cents a gallon to a dollar. He was using a British tax as a model when he suggested this, and even as he advocated doing so, he also advised that this was going to be hard to enforce, thanks to the size of the nation and the the remoteness of the places distillers operated and the fact that that was five times more money than they were taxed before. In spite of this contradictory recommendation, the federal government started raising the tax on spirits in 1864. It rose in increments during and after the Civil War, eventually reaching $2 per gallon, making the illegal distilling of tax-free spirits extremely attractive. And just as it was way more appealing to distill in secret than to pay the tax, the government had a lot more territory to monitor thanks to the readmission of the rebelling states back into the Union. And this also meant that a lot of the territory that the government was now trying to monitor for illegal distilling was deeply, deeply distrustful and resentful of the federal government in the wake of the war. This was doubly true since the government had implemented the tax as a way to pay for the war with the South in the first place. However, although moonshine is heavily associated with the South, and a lot of the pop culture references to it are rooted in stereotypes of the South and Appalachia, people were making liquor illegally basically everywhere. The tax was so high that people were hiding small stills, not just in barns and hollers, but in kitchens and basements in America's major cities as well. The government hired revenue agents, also known as revenuers, to try to enforce the law and make sure taxes were paid. These agents tried to ferret out and then bust up or confiscate people's stills. Then they would either confiscate the product or pour it out on the ground. This led to violence and riots, especially in cities and towns where word could spread and people could gather quickly to fight back. The government lowered the tax back down to 50 cents a gallon in 1868. 
But that did little to stem the tide of illegal distilling, the attempts at government enforcement, or the violence that followed in its wake. Attempts to enforce the law in remote, often mountainous areas did not go well. Federal agents were frequently in unfamiliar and treacherous territory where they were actively detested. They couldn't necessarily count on local law enforcement to help them out because local law enforcement often took a really live-and-let-live approach to their neighbors' distilling operations. All through the late 1800s, revenuers tried to shut down stills, and moonshiners tried to keep on distilling. Revenue agents were killed and injured in the line of duty, and the media portrayed moonshiners as desperate, uneducated outlaws likely to kill any hapless people that stumbled over their stills. This continued to be a joke in my family when I was growing up. Like, my brother and cousin and I would go play in the woods, and when we came back, my grandpa would be like, y'all find anybody still? (laughs) (laughs) Or don't go too far in the woods, you might find a still. Anyway, as all of this was going on, the temperance movement was gaining traction around the United States. Cities, counties, and entire states were outlawing the sale, manufacture, and consumption of alcohol, which... Contrary to anybody's purpose in doing that, just drove up the demand for Moonshiner's illegal wares. Then, with the 18th Amendment, which was ratified on January 16, 1919, it became illegal to make, sell, or transport intoxicating beverages anywhere in the United States. This amendment went into effect on January 16, 1920. And with that, because no one could make liquor legally... Uh, the people already making moonshine tried all kinds of things to make their product faster and cheaper or to dilute the final product so they could sell more without needing more quality ingredients. Advances in distilling technology made it possible for moonshiners to make much bigger runs of liquor, moving from 10 to 50 gallon copper pots to 500 gallon stills. But even so, that was not enough to meet the additional demand for illicit liquor during Prohibition, and people who were either ignorant or actively malicious turned to techniques that were actually quite dangerous to make liquor. They used coils that were made of lead in their steels instead of copper, and then the people drinking the resulting liquor got lead poisoning. People started saving and selling runs of liquor that had previously been discarded because they contained uh, dangerous ingredients that were byproducts of the distilling process. Denatured alcohol, which was still legal because of its legitimate uses and things that had nothing to do with drinking, was added to liquor as an ingredient, and that could have deadly consequences. The idea that bad liquor could make you go blind came from the use of wood alcohol as an additive to try to get around the law. Almost a decade into Prohibition, law enforcement was confiscating more than 10 times as many stills per year as it had before. And it wasn't just because more people were making moonshine. Liquor kingpins organized networks of distillers into their own criminal organizations to increase productivity and streamline operations. Sometimes law enforcement wasn't just tacitly ignoring these operations. Officers were actively involved. And these criminal networks did not just operate in America's most remote corners. For example, Al Capone's Chicago area criminal organization was connected to a moonshine ring that was tied up in more than 50 different raids. And this went on until prohibition was repealed by the 21st Amendment, which was ratified on December 5th of 1933. So even though people could get legal liquor again, the end of Prohibition did not put a stop to moonshine. The most famous federal case related to it took place in 1935, and it 
was tied to a massive criminal network in Franklin County, Virginia. Local law enforcement was complicit and actively part of this criminal ring thanks to its protection racket, basically charging a fee to moonshiners in exchange for their protection. One deputy sheriff was murdered just days before a federal grand jury was to convene on the matter. In the end, the criminal investigation and grand jury hearing in Franklin County led to the federal court case United States of America versus Edgar A. Beckett et al., also known as the Great Moonshine Conspiracy Trial of 1935. This was a massive, multiple-month case against more than 30 defendants involving more than $5.5 million in tax revenue that was owed to the government. It was not long after this point that Moonshine made another big impact on American culture, which we're going to talk about after another brief break for a word from a sponsor. So we would be remiss if our history of Moonshine did not include its influence on auto racing. Thanks to Henry Ford's assembly lines, cars became affordable to many Americans in the 19-teens. Almost immediately, people who could afford to buy a car began racing them against one another as a pastime. Of course, people were also using cars to haul illegal liquor. Moonshine runners would modify the interiors of their cars so that they would hold as much product as possible, doing things like removing seats and other accoutrements as necessary. And then they'd refine their driving skills to both make as many deliveries of illicit liquor as possible and to outrun the law on often treacherous, winding, mountainous roads that led from the stills to the customers. The next logical step was using those same skills and sometimes the same cars to race around a racetrack. One of the first people to make a name for himself doing this was Lloyd C., known as Lightning, a moonshine runner who tore up and down Georgia Highway 9, also known as the Whiskey Trail, hauling illegal liquor. He won races all over the South before being shot to death in an argument over about $9 worth of sugar used in the still he ran with his brother and his cousin, and that took place in 1941. His cousin was actually the one who pulled the trigger and was convicted of his murder. At about this time, the sport of stock car racing was rather informally organized. And once the United States entered World War II, its popularity dwindled significantly. Rubber and fuel were both needed for the war effort. The men making the moonshine, on the other hand, often had way too long of a criminal record to be allowed into the armed forces. Instead, the big hurdle in their continuing to make moonshine during the war was the fact that they needed the raw ingredients were once again needed somewhere else. But once the war was over, people started racing again. And soon, driver Bill France gathered a group of other racers, promoters, mechanics, and others to form the National Association of Stock Car Auto Racing. You would know that more likely by its name of NASCAR. Many of the first NASCAR drivers had, like Lloyd C., honed their skills hauling illicit liquor. The same was true of some of the mechanics, who had lots of experience working on bootleggers smuggling cars both before and after the war. Some of them had actually gone to serve in the war and had gotten additional uh, experience working on military vehicles. On February 15th of 1948, NASCAR held its first race. The winner was Robert Red Byron, who drove a car owned by former moonshiner Raymond Parks and maintained by former moonshine mechanic Red Vote, who is one of the who is also the person who coined the NASCAR name. One of NASCAR's first really famous drivers was Junior Johnson, whose Scots-Irish family had been involved in moonshining all the way back to the 1700s. 
Revenue agents actually raided the Johnson home when he was just a little boy and his father wound up going to federal prison. Johnson himself dropped out of school at the age of 14 and started running moonshine for his dad. Just as Lloyd C. had, Johnson had honed his driving skills running liquor, this time in the roads around Wilkes County, North Carolina, before he made his NASCAR debut in 1953. Johnson's racing career, though, was interrupted by just shy of a year in federal prison for making untaxed whiskey that same year. Today, there is actually a Junior Johnson's Midnight Moon Moonshine, which is a totally above board and legitimately taxed corn liquor enterprise. But NASCAR's ties to moonshine aren't just about the drivers having learned to handle a car by outrunning the law. Many of NASCAR's earliest owners of the cars, the teams, and the tracks also funded their ventures through moonshine money. However, as NASCAR really got established, moonshine was starting to wane. In the late 1950s, the Department of Revenue changed up its plan for fighting untaxed liquor, focusing on both the moonshiners and their raw materials. The feds started watching raw materials like sugar, jugs, and corn, and they also started trying to educate the merchant community about why it should not sell those things to moonshiners. There were also education campaigns for people who might be buying moonshine, and these campaigns were about the dangers of potentially contaminated product, either through the deliberate addition of contaminants or by using dangerous materials like car radiators to build stills. Posters, brochures, and church fans circulated with warnings like, Warning! Moonshine is poison. And these campaigns worked, to an extent. And through the 50s and 60s, states, counties, and cities that had prohibited alcohol gradually repealed these laws, which reduced the demand for bootleg liquor. Airplanes and aerial surveillance also made it easier to spot concealed stills in remote areas, and that made enforcement of the laws easier. Plus, people living in remote areas found they could make more money off of another concealed crop, which was marijuana. Federal law enforcement still does keep tabs on moonshine. But today, when somebody is both selling and distributing untaxed liquor, not just making it for their own personal use, there's often another crime in play at the same time, like a meth lab or illegal firearms or a pot farm. So it's not usually just about the hooch anymore when the federal law enforcement does a raid. More recently, there's actually been a resurgence in moonshine as a beverage, often made in a way that's completely legal, licensed by the appropriate licensing bodies, and taxed like other liquors. And many of these retain the name moonshine as a nod to the recipes and distilling techniques that were originally used to make it. Pedants will point out that moonshine is by nature illegal, so some brands use other terms like shine or corn whiskey or white whiskey. Regardless, the result is still an unaged, clear liquor, uh, usually made from corn. I uh, actually have recently seen in the last couple of years during like some of the, the food and wine festival type events in Epcot, they sell moonshine in some of the yep. <laughs> in some of the stores there. And it's like it kind of cracks me up that now we have artisanal moonshine. There's definitely artisanal moonshine now. Uh, you can go out for brunch in places I'm imagining elsewhere also, but especially around the South is where I've experienced it. And they'll have like moonshine Bloody Marys on the brunch menu, uh, which is kind of funny to me. <laughs> the first time I ever saw it, I was like, but isn't moonshine illegal? 
No. Anyway, do you have some listener mail to top this one off? I do. This is from Megan, and it is from it is related to our recent podcast that's the two part series about redlining. And Megan says, "Dear Tracy and Holly, I'm an avid listener to the podcast, especially during marathon training, and re- recently listened to the redlining two part podcast and had to stop and rewind when I heard you mention Richmond, Virginia, and mentioning the digital scholarship lab at the University of Richmond." She goes on to talk about. Oh, that was her alma mater and talking about uh, some work that she did with them while working there or while in school there. So to return to the letter, uh, while I did not work on the redlining Richmond project, I did work on several projects to include electoral mapping from the 19th century and a project called Visualizing Emancipation, an archival mapping project of notices of runaway slaves and Union Army, Army movements in the Richmond Times Dispatch during the end of the Civil War. The maps that the DSL digitized of 1930s Richmond were very interesting and disheartening to look at. While I love my city, the legacy of the Civil War and the Jim Crow South are still very visible in Richmond. The HOLC map, with few exceptions, basically looks the same, highlighting the working-class neighborhoods, the historically African-American districts, and the low-income neighborhoods. Several of the interstates and freeways were routed through historically African-American neighborhoods, creating a literal barrier between neighborhoods of different races. It was great to listen to a podcast that hit so close to home, literally, for me, and the shout-out you made for the University of Richmond and the Digital Scholarship Lab. Thanks for the informative podcasts and keeping me sane during these long runs, Megan. Thank you so much, Megan. The reason that I wanted to read this email is that visualizing emancipation is amazing. It is basically a map of the United States. You can filter by all sorts of different criteria of, uh, like, types of emancipation activity that was going on, like... uh freed people who were helping the Union Army or violence against enslaved Africans. Like, some of it is definitely happier than other of it. Uh, but you can look at it on a map and see where all these things were going on. And then you can also look on it as a look at it as a list and read the text of the original source documents that all of this information came from. So it's just phenomenal. We're going to put a link to it in our show notes. So thank you again, Megan, for writing to us. If you would like to write to us, we are at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at Mist History. Our Tumblr is MistInHistory.tumblr.com and we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have an Instagram. We are in History on Instagram as well. If you would like to learn more about what we have talked about today, come to our parent company's website, which is HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word moonshine in the search bar, and you will find how moonshine works. You can also come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, and you will find show notes, the link that I just talked about to the Visualizing Emancipation Project at the Digital Scholarship Lab, an archive of every single episode we have ever done, lots of other cool stuff. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 